a special episode of AU Manufacturing Conversations with Brent Belinsky, featuring one of the companies we're putting forward as part of our quest to identify and celebrate Australia's 50 most innovative manufacturers for 2024. This campaign has been made possible through the generous support of MYOB, the original business management software developers. Nothing beats the OG as well as the CSIRO and the New South Wales Government's Advanced Manufacturing Research Facility. Lewis, good to have you on the program. Thanks for making the time to talk to us on AU Manufacturing Conversations. No worries. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. The first question for you is the standard opener, and that's how did you get here and what do you make? Yeah, so Bygen is a spin-out from the University of Adelaide. So it was founded by myself while I was a PhD student, along with one other PhD student and our supervisor in the chemical engineering department. We essentially have developed technology that we call low temperature activation, which is really a cheaper and more sustainable way to make a very common material called activated carbon, which is high surface area material which is widely used in things like uh, drinking water treatment and precious metal recovery. So we basically developed this process that we think is a lot better than the incumbent method and started a company about yeah, four years ago to commercialize it. Well let's look at two of the things you've just mentioned then. First of all the product of activated carbon. It's a whole bunch of black soot looking stuff but there's more going on than just that crude explanation there. Tell me about why it's interesting to you as you've been spending quite a fair chunk of your life working on it, and presumably it's of interest. Tell me why that's so and what is it for those who are unfamiliar? Yeah, so it's a funny one because everyone benefits from the existence of activated carbon in their daily life, but very few people have heard of it. It's been around for around about 100 years. and Basically, it's a it looks like a black solid or black granules, but it's been made to contain a very high internal surface area. So one gram has at least 800 square meters of surface area. This comes from the presence of lots of small holes that are called pores. And essentially all of these pores make it act a little bit like a sponge, which is kind of a crude explanation of it. But chemicals or molecules travel inside the internal surface, the pores of the carbon, and they get physically trapped to that surface so you can separate out contaminants from liquids and gases and do some work with solids as well it's used extensively in water treatment like i use so it gives us clean water it's used in industrial processes to clean gases before they get emitted to the atmosphere and yeah a lot of the work we do is in sort of remediating polluted soils as well so it's a really crucial material and very interesting but yeah we think it's an area right for innovation because it's been made the same way for a very long time Right, and it's a fairly decent-sized and fast-growing market as well as uh, all that. Yeah, lots of different estimates on the size. Around about 4 million tonnes is probably an average of what you can see out there, so 4 million tonnes being used every single year. And yeah, I mean, it's growing at around about 9 or 10%, which is primarily due to increasingly strict environmental standards around water quality and air quality, which kind of facilitate its use in greater quantities. So that's the major driver for growth. So that's the end product. Tell us about how you're making it, your low temperature alternative to some fairly well-established and fairly environmentally damaging, excuse me, ways of creating activated carbon. Expand on that, please. Yeah, so the conventional way, well, there's two main ways that you can do it traditionally. 
The first way is what we call physical activation. And the, the traditional way is basically to make a, a carbon-rich material, which is essentially charcoal, and then you react that charcoal with steam at very high temperatures. So somewhere between 900 to 1,000 degrees. And the steam and the carbon react. That's where you basically start to generate the internal porosity and surface area because you're essentially etching away at the internal surface and creating those holes or making the existing holes bigger. The other way you can do it is chemical activation where you replace the steam with sort of strong acids or bases, but that's not very commonly used unless you want really, really high surface area, high value applications like energy storage. So we kind of targeted the physical activation method. Heating steam up to 1,000 degrees is a very energy intensive process. The chemistry of that reaction means that you require multiples of the mass of the carbon in steam. So you need a lot of it at the same time. And the only real way to get that heat source is to, to use additional fossil fuel heating. So we basically developed a method which we call low temperature activation, where we have a proprietary mixture of gases, which are alternatives to steam. And the cool thing about our technology is that that process is actually self-sustaining. So while we make our activated carbon, the process generates its own heat source. So we completely eliminate the need for external heating, which saves massively on the operational costs, but it also has some capital cost advantages as well, because you don't need as thick sort of steel walls. You can use lower grades of steel and you can reduce the amount of infrastructure because you don't need to generate that steam at the same time. So there's a few different advantages there. And one of them like you mentioned on your application was something like, well, you were first of all sequestering carbon rather than emitting it. And that was up against emitting, I think, 18 tonnes of CO2 per tonne produced of activated carbon using the steam method. Yeah, correct. So the carbon intensity of the alternatives primarily depends on the feedstock that's being used. So the markets, well, the majority of the existing market is still coal-based activated carbon in the sense that coal is the raw material being used to make it. The, you know, if you look at a life cycle analysis of that process with the high temperature steam activation, it comes in around about 20 tons of CO2 for every ton of activated carbon that's produced. The second most popular material is coconut shell. The carbon intensity of that is reduced, but it's still quite a big net emitter because you do need such high, you know, the energy and fuel required to heat up the steam. So that comes in around about 14 or 15 tons of CO2 per ton of product. We're really eliminating the CO2 emissions because we, as I mentioned, have a self-sustaining process. So we don't need any external fuel during continuous operation. And by using renewable, sustainable feedstocks, we are actually able to sequester CO2 when we make our activated carbon. So we sequester around about two tons of CO2 for every ton of product that we make. So it's quite a big difference between us and the conventional technologies. Well, on the topic of feedstocks, tell me what you've been using so far and the sort of results produced. I guess it's probably not a simple thing at the chemical level and characterising these things is probably very involved. But for a layman, could you explain basically what's going in, what's coming out and some of the results that you... When we started the company, we looked at a lot of different materials, particularly what was available in Australia. And with time... 
and not only looking at the technology but just looking at the business credentials and logistics and things like that we primarily work with wood and nutshells now they're abundant relatively low priced and available in, in quite large quantities in centralized locations so our business was never going to be setting up kind of mobile plants to look at waste in lots of different locations it works better at scale so that really lends itself to fixed or semi-fixed plants instead of mobile plants so wood and nutshells really take the boxes for us if you're talking about the quality of the product that we make in terms of industry standard testing which is really primarily looking at the surface area in terms of how many square meters per gram we've been able to get some results that are right up at the top end sometimes exceeding some of the better products that are out there in the market right now we also do for some of our main target markets very specific testing so we'll literally rather than just use the industry standard QAQC we'll run trials for a particular contaminant and measure the absorption capacity for our carbons to kind of give even more credence to the efficacy of the product because there is a bit of a disconnect sometimes between the way that the industry does the standard QAQC metrics and actually what the result is for a specific contaminant that might be because it has an irregular shape or it has a lot of charges on the molecule which means that it behaves differently to other molecules so we we do endeavor for the the main target markets to actually do specific testing and we've had some really good results in drinking water treatment as well as in PFAS remediation as well Right. It's a good segue to, to PFAS, which is a term that people are hearing more and more. You know, you, you look at PFAS and you think, oh, what's this thing? And it turns out it's a long list of things. It's quite a broad family of chemicals. And tell me about the issue of PFAS. What is it and why have people, governments and companies started to care about it so much over the, the last few years? So like you said, it's a family of chemicals. We sort of, as well as the industry, separate them into what we call short-chain PFAS species and long-chain PFAS species. The origins of PFAS in sort of everyday use has been in things like non-stick pans. So the chemical itself has a lot of unique properties, like it repels water and oil and makes it good. So Teflon is, is a sort of type of PFAS. But that did branch out into like a lot of other applications, like uh, firefighting foams and clothing, packaging. What's happened is it's been used extensively around the world. And there's been suspicions for a long time. That would probably be an entire podcast by itself. But a lot more evidence coming out that particularly the long-chain PFAS species are harmful to humans, particularly because they're called forever chemicals, so they don't actually naturally break down. So if they get into the human body, it takes a, a very, very long time for them to actually be excreted, and that can have implications on, on the body's health. So there's now a bit of a race on to remediate contaminated sites, some of the worst contaminated sites are around military bases and airports because of the firefighting foams in particular. But you can find it everywhere in the world, unfortunately, these days. So we look at both contaminated soils and water, and we are working with our partners to supply the activated carbon, which is one of the most common ways of actually absorbing it from contaminated waters and soils. We'd like to take another moment now to acknowledge our sponsors, MYOB, as well as the CSIRO and the New South Wales Government's Advanced Manufacturing Research Facility. There would be no 50 Most Innovative without these guys. 
Thanks again for making this campaign possible. And Activated Carbon mentioned earlier that there are estimates around the actual size of the market, though it's in the billions of dollars and growing quite rapidly. Is a lot of that made up of remediation work of the kind you're looking to do? I don't have access to any reports that really quantify how fast that market is growing because the PFAS remediation market is made up of a, a bunch of subsectors. It's not just carbon by itself. It is a very crucial part of it. Our experience, as well as the experience of our partners, is a, a fast-growing market. Some of the numbers we've been hearing is it, it's kind of doubling each year. That's particularly there's been some news coming out of the U.S recently where they're starting to mandate minimum PFAS levels in drinking water down to the parts per trillion. So all of this legislation that I was talking about earlier is really facilitating growth in the activated carbon market. So there absolutely is quite a significant increase in the demand for it. So interest from customers so far, I'd like to know where that's come from. And if part of your business model involves charging a disposal fee, sometimes recycling and similar type companies do that, what does it look like? Yeah, so we're a little bit different to traditional activated carbon companies in that our business model is actually primarily licensing our technology to the companies that produce the feedstock that we use. So the business of kind of build own operating activity carbon plants is a very expensive one. And, you know, we acknowledge the capital constraints that we're under. So we looked at more innovative business models. The licensing one is one that we feel allows us to grow quite quickly without needing huge amounts of capital. So what would typically happen is that we would approach or be approached by a producer of the raw material. We then license the technology to them. and the plant is built on their site and it's operated by them. And we really take on the role of not only being the technology provider, but also selling the activated carbon on their behalf. So we have good relationships with a lot of activated carbon customers. And the demand from the customer really, or what interests Biogen for them really depends on where they're located and what market they're in. So if you're talking about PFAS remediation, the quality of the carbon is absolutely essential because you don't want to buy a rubbish activated carbon and find out a few years down the line that it hasn't effectively immobilized the PFAS. In other markets, you know, the availability of a local source of carbon is very important. The environmental site is also very important for a lot of customers. So we have a mixture of sales agreements with not only end users of the carbon, but also with distributors. So we have an agreement with a distributor in Germany for Europe, and we kind of keep a lot of flexibility in terms of who we're actually selling our activated carbon to. Yeah, so that's that's how we approach it. And so you'd have machinery operating in Germany and you make sales over there? So if you talk about the European one in particular, the production plants that we have coming online are all in Australia. The activity carbon market at the moment is quite diverse. So you have a lot of production in Asia and America that is exported to Europe or even imported into Australia. So for these initial projects, we'll be producing it in Australia and then exporting it to Europe for this particular customer. Okay. I'm interested to know what R&D looks like, given that you're a company made of highly technical people, developing a highly technical process for various sorts of inputs and outputs. How do you pick your battles with R&D? What, what does your technology development look like? Some of that, please. I think throw in the mix the fact that you know we're a really small company and we don't have the luxury of targeting every single avenue of R&D that we want to. 
I think for us, you know, we're, we were born in a university with essentially academic researchers. I like to think that we've moved on a bit from kind of focusing purely on research, but you do need to do a lot of due diligence, particularly when you're looking at how you're formulating your R&D plans. So we primarily look at the technical feasibility of what we're trying to achieve. And then just as importantly, or even more importantly, looking at what the immediate short-term or medium-term commercial outcome for us is. We do not have the luxury of looking very long-term. We know as a startup, we really need to be focusing on R&D work that has a more immediate impact on us. So we look at what do we believe is readily achievable. So that might be talking to customers, doing our internal modeling, and then trialing it in our smaller production units, checking and verifying whether the assumptions that we're making are accurate, and then proceeding to produce it on a larger scale and do trials. So we have to be very precise in the way that we go about it. We can't have a massive sort of scattergun approach. But anything that we're doing is really originating from feedback from customers and requirements from customers. And so to continue with the R&D theme, I really enjoyed a point you made in your application. And I'd like if you could expand on it, please. And that point was, we understand that failures are common in R&D and these should not be viewed entirely through a negative lens. This is something that originates from the foundation of the company being a spin-out from a research institution and having technical founders. Yeah, well, I think anyone who's been involved in research in the past knows that the success rate in a lot of R&D efforts is quite low. So we certainly don't have the mentality that every sort of missed target in terms of whatever QAQC metric that we're looking at is a failure. Many, many times we've looked at doing one specific area of research and then found a few months later, actually, where we might not have originally thought that was a great result, but this new area that we're looking into, we can take the learnings from this previous work that we may have discounted and actually apply that in this new area. So anything that we've done, even if it's not given us exactly the result that we want straight off the bat, that is a really key learning it helps us test our assumptions in terms of how we think the product behaves. And then we can then use that when we go to you know, try the next R&D effort afterwards. So any failure, if you want to call it that, really can provide very, very crucial learnings to help tailor your R&D approach afterwards. And like I said before, the number of times that we've taken those learnings from prior approaches and then applied them in a new way has, you know, we've done that many, many times. So it's been super important. And a recurring question for this series is what's your personal definition of innovation? Well, I think innovation is about risk personally. I think it's about looking at either solving an existing problem. So if you talk about for us, we work in the area of material science. So for us, it's either about refining or improving on an existing material. This might be its performance or it might be the way that it's made, or it might be about developing a new material completely to target some sort of new problem. So I think innovation is really about looking at a problem, coming up with an approach to help solve that problem and knowing that there is a great degree of risk there, but the rewards of actually achieving that outcome outweigh the risk. So it's really about being brave in the way that you go about doing your work. So the standard closing question is, what's an issue within manufacturing that isn't getting the attention it deserves? What's your point of view? I can talk about something that's really specific to us. So the nature of what we do is 
we set up production plants in fairly remote locations. It's just the nature of our business and our technology that where the sites are located is where these large quantities of agriculture or forestry waste are located. So therefore it means they're quite remote sites. One of the things we're learning as we grow is the difficulty in sourcing skilled labor in remote locations is one that we will absolutely need to make for as part of our strategy moving forward. It's something that you don't really appreciate when you come out of you know a university research background, but that's something that we are becoming acutely aware of and something that seems to be quite a big problem in talking to our partners who produce the waste. It's a big problem for them as well. So I guess access to skilled labor in these sort of difficult remote locations is quite a big thing that might not be immediately apparent to anyone outside the industry. Yes, a lot of the things you find out as you go along and you at university you think, oh, well, I'm in a nice city, Adelaide, yep. everything that I need is here and so that should just continue, but not always the case. Definitely. That's something that we're having to think about months and months and months before sites actually get up and running. How do we actually incentivize people to make the move to these locations? So yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't, you don't actually, it's the logistics of actually setting up these kind of distributed models. Quite often you can't anticipate all these issues. Lewis, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you and thanks very much for taking the time. Good to have you on A Manufacturing Conversations. No worries. Thanks for having me.